So I have with me Michael Sakasis. He's been writing about philosophy of technology and ethics for over 10 years, right? I and mean, right now you have a newsletter, The Convivial Society. But the thing that caught my attention was when you wrote Fortnite in The Good Life. As I said in that little newsletter, gaming is not my beat. So I wrote that with a little bit of trepidation, making a very specific point. But yeah. Maybe a common view of gaming, especially for people that don't necessarily play games, is something like a lot of video games are violent and that's not good for you. So video games are bad. Um, and it's very like simple view of gaming, right? Right. But I guess you were trying to get across the point that maybe Fortnite is bad isn't really what you should be thinking, but rather the opposite question of is Fortnite not just good, but does it promote certain type of character in people when they're playing? Right. So that was generally the idea, right? That instead of focusing, so I'm of the age where when I was gaming, Super Nintendo was the, the platform that was really popular and Mortal Kombat had just come out. A lot of the same type of stuff was in the air about Mortal Kombat, its violence, uh, how graphic it was. And, you know, I played a good bit of it with my friends at the time. Uh, never really felt tempted by violence. So I kind of get that idea that there's a, a tenuous connection here. And you know, there's a good bit of debate in the literature about whether there's any kind of causal relationship or not. But right, whether that can be established or not, my default here is to kind of think about these things through a kind of virtue ethic lens. We're kind of asking the question, constantly, right? Not is this one thing right or wrong necessarily, although it's an important question to ask, but what kind of person am I becoming? What kind of habits am I inculcating? What will those habits make of me in the long run? And then we're also sort of asking, not just am I avoiding bad things, but am I pursuing good things, virtuous things? So that's a frame that doesn't offer a simplistic answer. You don't just sort of insert Fortnite into that and come out with a yes, play it, no, don't play it kind of response, right? But I think it helps fill out, give more thickness to the moral reflection that might be involved, right? So it complicates it and and highlights some ways about thinking about the problem, which are not, you know, again, easily reducible to a set of rules. Just play it for 20 minutes a day and you'll be okay. Yeah, I think I appreciate that sort of thinking where gaming has become so important in our culture. Actually, this is something I was talking about with my friend the other day. From a programmer point of view, if you're the quote-unquote expert, when you see how people use your software, one obvious reaction is like, oh, they're doing it wrong. I should prevent them from doing that in the first place. One example is how on your desktop, you have all these icons, right? You can drag them around. And some people have a very specific layout for where all their icons are. Mm -hmm. Some people might be like, well, why don't you just use alphabetical order? Why don't you just have no icons? And there's something important about an attitude of understanding what leads someone to do a certain behavior. Instead of saying, oh, gaming is bad. Why is it happening? Yeah. And and even sort of what desires is it fulfilling? What roles it playing in uh, social life? One of the interesting dynamics about gaming today is the kind of sociality that it inculcates. I was about to say that it has a social dimension, but I corrected myself because when I played with my friends, it had a social dimension. You know, we were all there in a room playing together and it, it, it was a kind of artifact around which a certain kind of social interaction formed. Now that social interaction is, is happening in a different mode, in a different shape. And I think asking the question, what are the outcomes of this? What are the differences? And Paying close attention to, as you say, how this is being used, I think is always important. There was a trend of like this idea of 
couch play. Or actually, before that would have been like arcades, right? Mm-hmm. And that was a right. certain experience where you had to go somewhere. And actually, a place to meet people. Right, and eventually, right. like we had home consoles mm-hmm. where you would have LAN parties where you bring your computers. Right. That was a communal experience. And eventually, right. we had the internet. Everyone has their own console. You don't have to go to everyone's house. And now we have quarantine where like even more so, right? <laughs> right. You are together, but in some sense, you're not together. Another point, there's been a resurgence in board games too, at least in yeah. like Western sphere yeah. of like Catan is super big. And that's like kind of replaced video games with board games. Right. The first trajectory outlined from the arcade to the home with others to being in the home sort of physically isolated, but still connected online. Yeah, exploring what are the ramifications of those different modes uh, of sociality, I think are valuable. And yeah, you know, that's funny. I have Catan on my shelf somewhere. It's been a little while now where we we played with friends before kids, as you know, people my age are want to say. And so that space and that kind of activity reverts to an analog medium mm. in that context. Yeah, I, I don't have any more thoughts on that in the moment, except maybe to connect with the trend towards vinyl records as a medium of choice for some people, uh, just interesting ways in which, you know, analog kind of reappears. Yeah. Yeah. You brought up kids. I, I think you had an interesting post recently about your thoughts as a parent. Yeah. So I went home for a while. So I got to live with my parents for a few months. And then I was just thinking about how they're still going to treat you like a kid, even though you're an adult. <laughs> and I, I even showed them the article. I really appreciated the metaphor of the carpenter and the gardener. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it speaks a lot to this idea of relationship. Going back to a video game analogy is treating people like they're NPCs in a game where they have this set rote thing where if you say X, they say Y. Right. Alison Gopnik wrote a book kind of developing that metaphor, and it struck me as a useful one. Because, yeah, the difference is whether you see your child as something that you can fabricate, essentially, to design in whatever shape or form you want them to, to come out as. And that's sort of the carpenter model where... You have a, a piece of raw material and then you just apply your carpeting, you know, your parenting tools in this case, and out comes this product in the shape that you, you desire. But the gardening metaphor right, suggests that the, you don't have that kind of power over the object, right? in this case, the child. If you're tending watermelon seeds, the watermelon seeds are going to become watermelon. Right? You can't make them be tomatoes. So there's a, a limit to your ability to generate the product that you desire here. And even using that language, I think, you know, betrays the, the temptation. And so understanding that, you know, you can care for and provide an environment conducive to their flourishing, speaking of children now, just as you would for a plant, that's a very different kind of way of thinking about the child. It goes back to the division that's really fundamental. I think we talked about this last time we talked, this mm-hmm. fundamental sort of division between what you receive as a gift and, and what you only experience as something that you made, that you control, that you master. So that divide, I think, runs through those two kind of modes of, um, of, of parenting as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that relates a lot to the views of Illich. We're talking about mm-hmm. treating people as commodities in our computer age. You know, we like to think of everything as a machine. Yeah. And I would say that sort of machine metaphor goes back much further. There's a, a rather well-known French text from the 1700s called Man as Machine. And so that metaphor is persistent to today and you know, sort of changed in some respects under the old days we might have called cybernetic conditions. That's one of the subtle ways in which our material environment kind of shapes how we think about ourselves and society 
it's not by the direct effect of the tools necessarily, but it's it's what happens when they become metaphors for the human person, for how society works. And, and then they become very powerful because these metaphors shape our imagination, our way of, of perceiving reality, or even of, of perceiving our own selves. So I think I actually took a little detour there. So what did you ask initially there in that? I think we can just go with that. I was thinking of that phrase, was it, we shape our tools and our tools shape us? Or Right, some variation. And that happens then through our use of those tools, which is perhaps the most obvious ways in, w- in which that happens. So then what I'm suggesting is that it may happen in, in even more subtle ways when the tools become metaphors. And to go back to the parenting question, right? Mm-hmm. So I wrote that newsletter in part because, you know, as I mentioned in there, I get asked this question a lot. And for a while, I didn't like to answer it because I didn't have kids. And, and I thought, well, you know, uh, I'm not about to lecture parents about something I have very little experience with or no experience with. But I felt a little bit of liberty now that I've, I've got two of my own. But often what people want to know are, are very straightforward things. This goes back to the gaming question even, right? Just should I do it or not? You know, should I ban this game from my child's life? If I let them play, how many hours a day do I let them play, right? They're all very sort of pragmatic, rule-oriented questions. And that's fine. You know, I understand the need for practical considerations of that sort. But the deeper stuff is often going on at another level and another dimension. So when we think about children and technology, right, the screen time question now really kind of dominates that discourse. So what I tried to do in the newsletter is start at a, at a much different place, which is to say that technology as a kind of metaphor that underlies our thinking about human beings and, and how we become the sorts of people that we are that's already sort of operating at the level of how we even conceive of the task of parenting, right? Apart from whatever individual choices or specific choices we make about this, that, or the other device in our child's life, are we approaching the task of raising children from a technocratic mindset, right? From a technocratic frame. And so that's a level at which I think, you know, most parents aren't, are often thinking, but I think it's, a, it's an important one as well. Right. We care so much about the content mm-hmm. before people are like, oh, don't read Harry Potter, that kind right. of thing. We're afraid of exposing people to different things because it's going to change them. And, and I actually have the same fear, I guess, me being a parent to my own parents mm-hmm. in the sense of a lot of these conspiracy theory type things, right? Yeah. Especially because of social media. So in that case, I'm basically being the same person. I'm trying to be the controlling person. Don't watch this. Don't right. look at this sort of thing. And I have to learn to let go. Well, they're going to do it anyway if I tell them, right? And it's yeah. like, how do I really engage in that? Yeah, that is interesting. And the impulse in cases like that is, is to make that very bright line, right? Just don't watch this, right? Don't look at this. And and I think there's a place for that, uh, you know, especially with, mm-hmm. with young children. A lot of it, I think, comes down to this question of responsibility and, and capability, right? What are young children capable of processing? And again, note the technological metaphor there for an essentially emotional work. So with older parents, obviously, it's different to some degree. You know, they're, they're not children per se, right? Although, I mean, I don't know. Here I feel like uh, it's hard to even talk about this in a, in a generic abstract way. Every case is different. But all that to say that, yeah, I, I, I see the, the similarity there. And ideally, you want to, at least the way I think about it, is to help them mature into the kind of person that can wisely adjudicate these questions of what is good, how should I spend my time, to be able to encounter material that we don't just have to say is taboo, but we can say, 
here are some of the issues with it and, and allow them to think responsibly through that. And that's obviously, you know, has its own challenges. And, and there's a question about whether that kind of approach is adequate in the conditions of digital media, right? Where there's just this overwhelming flood mm-hmm. of, of information. We're just sort of swimming in it. It's disorienting. So yeah, these are challenging questions, both for the child and as, as you say, even maybe for older adults who are to some degree, apparently quite susceptible to uh, some of the more prominent kind of conspiracy theorizing that's capturing uh, our political sphere. Yeah, I guess it's a problem for all of us, I guess, because like we, none of us have really figured out how to manage our attention and just what is going on. You've talked about this a lot of like this impulse to want to be online and for me even to be informed and to say something and not being able to step away from it all yeah especially now right yeah right and i'm I'm glad you made that point right because i'm here talking about young children and adults as if they are the ones with the problems right but no that that's absolutely right all of this as a human being you're in this world at different stages of life, maybe the challenge presents itself differently, right? But we all struggle with this in one way, shape, or form. And the connection to Illich, just to kind of sneak him in at the moment, I, I think, you know, Illich was preoccupied, especially through the 70s, with the question of limits and scale and threshold, right? And I think this is really an essential point. It's one that I think is critical, the question of scale, where the approach that you might take to consider the information ecosystem, right? So, in a pre-modern setting, without the printing press, say, right, you're likely to encounter you know, very discrete amounts of, of textual information, right, or, or coded information, right? You, you encounter information all the time in reading, you know, the way the wind is blowing or the, the cloud formations to determine whether it's going to rain, right? There, we live in an information-rich environment. And so even in pre-modern context, right, you're deciphering information of a sort. But thinking about kind of symbolic human-made information that's, you know, um, encoded in some way, shape, or form in alphabetic symbols. And so a single book is a precious commodity, right? Most people wouldn't necessarily even own a single book. Yet then when you enter into the modern age and the printing press makes the printed word much more widely available, there are all sorts of complaints from the era that sound very familiar to us because they're essentially about what we think of as information overload, right? An overabundance of books, an overabundance of information, much of it being of little value, it overwhelming people's ability to make sense of their world. And that all makes you know a, a, a fair amount of sense given where you've been and, and where you are now. And so we then develop a certain set of skills, literacy skills that help us cope with that information environment. But it's essentially a function of scale. That's what's made the difference at that juncture. And and so here we've entered then into another ratcheting up of, of the scale at which we encounter media information. Because then the advice some people give is, well, you just need to develop a new set of tools, right? A new set of cognitive tools. And I, I suppose at one level, you, you have to at least make that effort, of course. But there is a question of whether you've not passed through a certain threshold, Right, so, you know, Illich talks about how, you know, there are these two thresholds in medicine, for example, he begins tools of conviviality with this, where through the first threshold, you have genuine gains in the ability to care for people, to improve people's general health. And what, what happens at those moments can be relatively simple. It's learning how important clean drinking water is, or being able to treat some basic infections. 
But then there's another threshold where the institution of medicine, when it kind of becomes institutionalized, begins now to reverse its gains in some respects, right? And this is contested territory. I think a lot of people would have various opinions about how we think about these gains, right? But uh, for Illich, the prospect, for example, of having his life extended by a couple of years, but at the great cost to his quality of life or to his mobility or to his ability to be with uh, friends and family, to be sort of, you know, as we sometimes say, kind of hooked up to a machine just for, you know, a few more months of life. Uh, to him, that was an anathema. And, and he lived that, right? You may know that he had un- an undiagnosed cancer for the latter part of his life and never had it treated. So this question of where you pass a threshold where the goods begin diminishing and harms begin accelerating and, and how past that threshold, it's not like you can just develop better coping mechanisms. You just can't. I think this was Illich's point. The, and to be in a more looming large in his imagination, he uses that as a metaphor for what then becomes a default posture. Well, past this threshold, the only thing we know to do is escalate uh, more money, more resources, more bombs, you know, more of the same as a way of curing what is being caused by the thing you're applying, right? The application of the thing is the problem, and the only thing you know to do is apply more of it. And so that dynamic, that principle that there's a point through which you cross a a threshold, and there is no adequate solution beyond that, or at least nothing that sort of solves the problem you're facing, right? And I think of maybe even social media as being uh, part of this, you know, our debates about how to moderate it, who should control it, whether or not the platform should censor this kind of speech or that kind of speech, whether politicians should be given special uh, consideration. All of those questions, um, sure, they're important to ask, and and maybe there are better and worse ways of answering them, but they're not going to solve the problem, right? That is a function of the scale at which we have connected people and the immediacy as well, right? The pace as well as the scale together. These just may be things that don't have solutions. We don't get to a communication utopia with social media tools as they exist simply by tweaking functionality or applying certain uh, rules of conduct, codes of speech to it, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for sure. The idea of limits, it seems like such a basic idea, but because of the internet, all these things don't really have limits, right? There's a supposedly unlimited space and it's instant time and all these things. And it makes us think we have no limits. This is definitely the case in tech. Like our culture is around tech will solve everything. The joke is like fix it with an app, right? Right, right. The question, who's the joke on? That's true because of startup culture is scale. Gaining as many users as possible, engagement. And I think we're all slowly realizing that, yeah, we are hitting this threshold of a lot of things you know like facebook's goal is to like connect everyone right it just seemed weird to say something like maybe we shouldn't connect everyone maybe you shouldn't (laughs) have twitter even open source it shouldn't be as open and i talked about this in nadia's book her book is about open source Mm -hmm. and how it's the same problems showing up there and how it reflects in our greater society of the neutral public square commenting on youtube videos anyone can do it the same problem maybe we have too many people involved yeah the proposition that there should be limits is a kind of modern heresy it goes Mm. against something i think deeply ingrained in western uh, modernity not only 
with regards to its technological aspects. Although, again, increasingly, I think these two things are so deeply intertwined, it's hard to pull them apart. So you see it reflected in tech, but you see it reflected in other areas as well. But yeah, it's one of those taken for granted assumptions that I think a lot of modern Western culture assumes, right? That, that limits are just fundamentally bad, right? They're there to be transgressed, to be overcome. They tempt us to push beyond them, right? And so I recognize, right? So there's a measure of caution, I think, that we should employ here, right? Because, well, what kind of limits are you talking about, right? Are you talking about the limits that a society places on you know, the capacity of women to participate in the civic square, for example, or, or the public square, or, or are, you, are you talking about limits that essentially become prejudicial with respect to certain people? Also, the question of who gets to pick these limits, what are they, how are they imposed, et cetera. So it's a thorny question, right? To simply say, you know, we should recognize that limits are good. I, I think that's true, but obviously that doesn't solve the matter because a lot of debate needs to follow from that. But this refusal... You know, I, I tend to come back to our limits are sort of a given part of our humanity, right? That, that I am a body in one place, that I inhabit one moment in time, as it were, right? That these temporal and uh, spatial limits, they are fundamentally good. And Wendell Berry, who, who you know, obviously has written a great deal about the, the temptation of limitlessness and, and its ills, but he has this wonderful passage where he talks about whether we see limits as an inducement to elaboration. You know, he says as a farmer, right, that one plot of land worked well and carefully and responsibly can be sustained for generations, right? It, it will provide its, its fund of riches, but you have to recognize its own unique limits and work within those limits. Any artist or anybody who works within the constraints of, of a genre or a particular tradition of dance or, or even an athlete, you excel at, at these different, in their own ways, beautiful human activities by working within the limits that are imposed, right? And so there's a way of framing limits that I think most of us would recognize as being more attractive, I guess, than just a way of saying no to what you want to do, right? But then involved in this is also this idea personal autonomy, mm -hmm. uh, a particular view of freedom uh, and freedom yeah. sort of being essentially defined down to doing whatever the hell I want to do at any given moment, right? Regardless of, of consequences. So I'd say that idea of technologically enabled limitlessness, a particular kind of conceiving of individual freedom and liberty also enmeshed within the, the, the powers that technology makes possible for us. All of these are really deeply embedded in, in the Western psyche. And so they pop up in all of our discussions about what tech should be, what it can do for us, how we should use it, the kinds of technologies that we imagine, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking we, we use this term like diminishing returns, but the threshold is saying that there's a point where it's not just diminishing returns where it's negative returns, right? Right, right, exactly. You know, uh, and I'm obviously not a, a medical doctor, so, you know, I'll just offer this as what Illich argues, that past this second threshold, he, he places that somewhere in the, in the mid-20th century. We then begin to get the generation, uh, I forget the technical term for this, but of diseases that are caused by the medical profession, right? The example that he gives is the radiation that frequent x-rays would have generated until that got figured out. It, it is just not a question of diminishing returns. It is a question of harms caused by the application uh, of that technique. 
past a certain threshold. Yeah. Right. I know that the term he was using was like counter productivity or something. Yes. In terms of the general principle, right? I was trying to remember the term for when the application mm-hmm. of medicine becomes um, harmful, right? The work of doctors itself becomes harmful. I think your your point about like extending life, I think is really interesting too. There's a book I also didn't finish reading called Being Mortal. And it talks about the same issue. Essentially, we are really good at extending life and like letting people live longer, but we don't know how to die well. Yes. This is a tool of one day, right? Yeah, it's interesting. The way we treat people that are dying is like, we just want quantity, which I guess is related to limitless. It's yeah. not really about quality. More of the same, right? Right, ex- exactly. And, you know, again, I, I I always try to make sure to, to strike a reasonable and, and non-judgmental note in this, mm-hmm. right? So I, I get it, right? If I have a loved one who is ill, or if I myself am ill, right? life is is precious, right? Life is good. And so to want to extend it, to want to try everything possible to extend it, I I understand, you know, I think I understand where that comes from. And so it's not as if I just want to say, you know, look, dude, sorry, you're going to die. So just give it up at this point and and make it seem as a sort of easy move to make psychologically, emotionally, whatnot. But that idea that there used to be right this tradition the art of dying right there's mm. a way of you live in such a way so that you're prepared to die well that whole way of thinking about mortality and i've only read some bits of Aguani's book but that whole way of thinking about mortality is lost to us and i wonder to what degree to reflect on this from a theological perspective if that is a function of just coming to see that this is sort of it, right? This is the one shot you get at life. And so the only thing to do is to extend it indefinitely. And I don't know if that's part of the picture as well. Although I will say this attitude isn't just limited to secular society, right? I think you're, you're as likely to see it within the church as without. And then we get into all sorts of other questions there. Yeah, I think you're the one that pointed me to like C.S.S. Lewis thinking, I forgot the title of what he wrote. Is it Learning in Wartime? Yeah, because there's two of them, actually. Yes, that's right. Kind of saying the same thing. There is the other one about kind of living in the nuclear age. Yeah, and I, I think that towards the end of that essay, which is part of what I quoted in the newsletter this past summer, there's this realization that, yes, you're, you're going to die. Maybe it's in war. Maybe it's you know, in a hospital bed. Death is, is a reality uh, that we face. And so, you know, the desire to extend our lives indefinitely tends to, it it comes at a cost, right? It comes at at, at a cost psychologically and emotionally. And it's interesting because there is this increasingly non-fringe movement around radical life extension. And even the language or the idea of approaching death as a technical problem, right? It's an engineering problem. We just have to apply the appropriate technique and and we can overcome death. You know, needless to say, I I tend to think this is a a fundamentally mistaken way of of perceiving it, but it is wrapped up with this modern technological project, right? It's it's something you find the seeds of even in Descartes and and Bacon. Right. And I guess modern society helps us forget that we are mortal i guess in this pandemic time it's like a reminder that hey this is possible and this will happen and i think it it's a good thing in the sense to realize that maybe we haven't thought about these greater questions of life i keep pointing this out but my old roommate just like randomly messaged me 
in the pandemic and he was like hey i've been thinking about heaven and just like what that means and i was like whoa it's it felt like kind of out of nowhere right yeah i mean there was this little school of art uh, what it's the the vanitas tradition right so it draws on the idea of vanity right vanity vanity is all vanity which is the old rendering of that famous Mm -hmm. passage in ecclesiastes and so you have this tradition of, of painting in i think it's in the baroque period where it's especially popular where it's just a scene of things like an hourglass, a skull, other symbolic representations of your mortality, right? Or the keeping of a memento mori, right? A remembrance of death, that you will die, right? This was, I think, part and parcel of human existence, this kind of recognition, even this focusing of your attention on the fact that you will die. It was intended to sort of reap a certain moral reward, right? In In the sense that, by being mindful of that, you live well, right, in light of your mortality. But I think you're right to say that, you know, much of modern society is meant to keep death out of sight, right? Illich, even writing in the 1970s, and, and he was living in Mexico in Cuernavaca at the time, he talks about how in a prior generation, most people would die at home. And they would be buried by their loved ones. One of the professions that he sees kind of coming up as an example of people losing their capacity to just care for themselves was the sort of professionalization of burial and disposal of of the human body. And so you, you saw death, right? This is the point, right? Death was amongst you, right? Now we, we cordon it off, right? It it happens out of sight. Um, There's a kind of taboo to it. And we have, I think, a difficult time reckoning with its presence emotionally, psychologically in our lives. And Mm. um, Hannah Arendt talks about this too, how in the modern Mm. world, biological life becomes the highest value and and it basically trumps everything, every other value. So there are a lot of different sort of theoretical strands that kind of land at the same place, which is, you know, that we now view biological life as this thing to be preserved at all costs, right? And that this is a in some respects, a uniquely modern attitude. Yeah, I was thinking about how you said we don't really see it. And I was thinking we don't really see it coming too, in a way, because people live in different places. The way you find out is like through a phone call or something. Whereas before, if you were living together. Right, right. Or even John Donne's famous poem, right, For Whom the Bell Tolls, the idea that in your community, there would be a public announcement of the death of a member, that everybody would sort of know that this had transpired. Oh, that's interesting. So that sort of reminds me of when people leave their job or they leave the city. It's not always announced. People just kind of like leave. Yeah. And then you find out a few months later, like, oh, what happened to this person? They're like, oh, yeah, they left. But at the same time, we have the opposite thing. Well, I know exactly what someone's tweeting or taking an Instagram photo of their food, but like not these things. Yeah, it would be interesting to explore. I've not thought about that. What what is it that we highlight with our new tools and, and what gets foregrounded, what gets backgrounded, right? Yeah, that, that is an interesting dichotomy. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, you can find us on Twitter at LeftPad or Nyafia or on our website, hopeandsource.com.